Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back everyone. Almost Sideways Podcast. Special edition as we are going over our uh, our top and bottom lists of 2018 in this podcast. Uh, once again, I am your host Terry Plucknett. Joining me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How's it going guys? Awesome. Excellent. So by the time this uh, this podcast is published... Uh, we will probably already know who will be playing in the Super Bowl, but we're recording this on Saturday night before the championship games. Uh, so uh, when everyone is listening to this, uh, Todd, who are they going to be talking about facing off in the Super Bowl? I think it's going to be the Chiefs and the Rams because it's not going to be the Eagles anymore because Alshon Jeffrey couldn't catch a pass. Yeah, with his cracked ribs. That was impressive to, to hear that he'd been playing like the last month with cracked ribs. Like for, like Frank Clark was playing the whole season with apparently zero elbows, is what I said. <laughs> I didn't see that. That's impressive. All right, Zach, who are we going to be, uh, be talking about? We're going to be talking about Mahomes Magic and uh, the old man Drew Brees. I don't know how you could possibly pick the Rams in that game, but uh, we'll see tomorrow, I guess. See everything. Everything inside me is is cheering for Chiefs Rams, which means it's probably going to be Saints Patriots. And every everything inside me that says this is what happens in the NFL says it's going to be Saints Patriots, and it's going to be that showdown of future Hall of Famers, and uh, both the up and comers are going down. But I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'm wrong. The the Patriots can't win on the road. I don't know. I think uh, the Pro Bowl has missed Tom Brady for a long time. I think uh, it will be nice to see him back in the Pro Bowl. There is no way he's playing in the Pro Bowl if he loses tomorrow. No <laughs> I mean, way. You know, he loves football. What else is he going to do? No you know? way. Gonna go back to drinking his uh, fruit for his uh, what spinach smoothies. I mean, you know, he wants to play. There's no way. There's no way he's playing in the Pro Bowl, regardless. He'll find some. He, he'll he'll just claim age as his injury and then uh, not go. <laughs> ego would be his injury. Yeah, he has an injured ego. He can't go play in the Pro Bowl. Um, also, uh, something that's going to be coming out, um, I'm, uh, putting the finishing touches on an article that'll be posted on our blog in the next uh, day or two. Uh, on Tuesday, not only is it Oscar nomination day, but it is also baseball hall of fame announcement day. Uh, I'm putting my, uh, my ballot, like I have the last few years up on our, uh, up on our website. Uh, I'm I'm thinking three guys get in. I know you guys don't care about this at all, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit. I'm thinking three guys get in. Mariano Rivera will get in easily this year. Uh, the late great Roy Halladay is going to be uh, is going to be inducted, and 
fingers crossed this year on, Edgar. on his last year Edgar is going to be getting in this year I it's looking good for him hopefully he breaks through if anybody else slides in as a dark horse it might be Mike Mussina's year as well but I think I think he's one year away from actually making it in um, and if Mike Mussina makes it that means that Kevin Brown's got to make it too you, you know Kevin Brown did not get much consideration when he was on the ballot uh, a lot of people are are oversight. A lot of people are looking at the the veterans committee that put in Harold Baines as a as something that's opening up a lot of doors for for guys that originally were thought to be not as a as elite as the Hall of Fame demands. So I find the whole Hall of Fame uh, baseball conversation fascinating, and so uh, yeah, you'll check out the the ten guys I'm voting for on the on the website soon. But we're here to talk about movies, not football or baseball or sports of any of that, any of those natures. Uh, so, before we get into our our best and worst of 2018, Tuesday is Oscar nomination day. Uh, Todd, you put up your final predictions uh, on our website uh, last weekend. Um, give us some final thoughts before uh, before we hear what's going to be uh, nominated. Uh, so there is one category that I think is absolutely stone cold locked and that's best actress. And it's like as locked as it has been since 2006. And that, uh, the, the nominees, the nominees are going to be Glenn Close, Olivia Coleman, Lady Gaga, Melissa McCarthy, and Emily Blunt. And I don't think there's really a possibility that it goes away from that. I think in Best Picture there are five people. There are five uh, nominees that are that are set, and the rest of them are probably going to get in. I think that there actually are going to be ten nominees this year, because I don't think that there really is a consensus Best Movie of the Year or even a Best like Few Movies of the Year. I think it's really spread out. So, uh, Black Klansman, A Star Is Born, Green Book, The Favorite, and the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody are absolutely getting in, and then. It's probably going to be Black Panther, Vice, Roma, if Beale Street can talk, and I think A Quiet Place has enough uh, followers that is going to get in as well. The, the, one, the one thing I would say about that is I would probably put Crazy Rich Asians over A Quiet Place for that 10th that spot if there's going to be a 10th. I think it, it has a better shot than A Quiet Place does. Um, well, A Quiet Place was uh, got the Producers Guild nomination. And I don't know, it only needs 5% of the votes, and I think that it, it, if, if there was a popular film vote, it would probably get a lot of the votes. Zach, what are your thoughts and, on this? I'm hold on, one t- other thing that I have yeah. to say is that uh, Zach and I have two bets going on uh, <laughs> with it, or more, actually three, but I actually went with one and against one and bested out this screenplay. We bet that A Star is Born, I bet that A Star is Born would not get nominated. I said now that it would, and I also said that Crazy Rich Asians would get nominated for screenplay, and he said it wouldn't, and I put that, put it in as well. So... I kind of hedge my bets there, and also, uh, obviously, the favorite is going to get nominated for something, Zach. So, <laughs> okay, you're going to lose that several bet. <laughs> somethings. 
<laughs> okay, but but here's what I really want to talk about, all right? Todd and I have a disagreement that we've texted about already, but I don't think Emily Blunt is by any means a shoe in for Best Actress. In fact, she would not make my list of what I predict will be the nominees. I would put in her place Yelitsa Aparico. Apir- no, you would not. Yes, I would. Absolutely, for Roma. I mean, Roma is one of the prohibitive favorites at this point, and uh, I think we saw this a few years ago with Saving Mr. Banks and Emma Thompson. Like, regardless, I think the Oscars see this as a lightweight film that there's no chance that Blunt would win and you know Roma is is a heavyweight contender at the Oscars this year so uh absolutely I let that exact movie that exact character has been nominated and in in the past and the movie was nominated for best picture in the past like yeah 1964 it was a a different era back then. yeah and there's still a lot of those voters are still alive (laughs) that that may be true um Todd, looking at your uh, your best actor list, uh, I would there's a couple things I would say. I think Christian Bale is the favorite right now over Rami Malek. Uh, Christian Bale for Vice, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody. So I would put. Well, I did him write this before one. the I did write this before the the Critics Choice Awards, but I I don't know. I still feel like Rami Malek is this year's Eddie Redmayne. I, I feel like the the physical transformation and the voice transformation is totally like. It puts him above. I mean, although not that Bale doesn't have that. I was gonna say you're talking about his physical and vocal transformation, and then you look at Christian Bale. I mean, he—that's the Golden Globe win is something. And the Golden Globe win is something. And Christian Bale won it too. I mean, yeah, but the drama category makes it more legit i think well well in your write-up to say that christian bale is third behind bradley cooper and rami malik is ridiculous also i don't i don't know if you have black klansman right now as your favorite to win if that's the yeah, case that's, john that's david washington does get in i'm sure for best actor however i think that spot would i would put him seventh behind willem dafoe and ethan hawk i think ethan hawk gets that spot willem dafoe a close sixth and then john david washington I think of Black Klansman as this year's, like, Michael Clayton, but I feel like there isn't a prohibitive favorite like No Country for Old Men was, and so I feel like Black Klansman could easily end up getting the, the top spot. Because nobody doesn't like Black Klansman. There, there are people that don't like all the other movies that are up there, right? But it needs yeah. to start winning stuff, though. What has it won? I mean... Dude, yeah, Tilda I, Swinton didn't win anything until the Oscars, like, and it's, it's the same kind of thing. This was a good argument like a month ago for Black Klansman, but it needs to start picking up picking up award wins, not just nominations. The, the SAGs haven't happened yet. It was nominated there. The SAGs are what, next weekend, right? Yeah, I think I you're guess right. that, that'll, that'll give a, a good indication. I mean, the only ones that... I, what, Crazy Rich Asians was nominated there. That's not going to win Best Picture, obviously. I think it was The Star is Born, Black Klansman... Uh, I don't remember what the other ones were. At the SAG? Yeah. Stars Born, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, Crazy Rich Asians, and something else weird. It didn't make yeah. sense. Yeah, and it wasn't like Vice, which was nominated for a bunch of stuff, right, or right. The Favorite, which was nominated for a bunch of stuff. Like That's why I feel like Black Klansman is in a good spot right now. Um, I would say another one that I would I would question is even with being snubbed at the SAGs and the BAFTAs, Regina King is the favorite to win supporting actress. Um, 
everything she's been up for, she's been winning. And yeah, but the people who vote on the Oscars are the people in the BAFTAs and the SAGs. Yeah, but right? I, I don't. I don't know. The reason why I said she wasn't the favorite, because I'm not sure she's going to get nominated. If she gets nominated, she'll probably win, but I'm not sure she's going to get nominated. She's, uh, I think, yeah, she wins. I think it's a much more, it's much more likely that Regina King wins than we see Rachel Weiss or Emma Stone get their second Oscar. No, I don't know about that. It, Todd, is there like a, uh, a Tommy Lee Jones in the Valley of Elaw pick in any category that you really uh, feel strongly about this year? Uh, well, the answer would be no, but I do feel like in Supporting Actress, if Academy voters really do fall for Green Book, then Linda Cardellini could easily get nominated. She could be that Jackie Weaver in Silver Linings Playbook type nomination. I mean, because she is really good in Green Book, but I mean, people have to really, really like the movie, and I think that they possibly can... But, I w- but she hasn't been nominated for anything so far, but neither was Jackie Weaver. I would agree. That's probably your best stab at a, at a super dark horse shocker nominee. The other ones aren't going to happen, but that one actually has a, has a chance. Well, who, know- who knows what they actually think of Widows? That's true, too. That's true, too. So when Yalitzia Aparicchio gets nominated, does that mean that all of our bets are just wiped out and I beat you? That's not even a bet. <laughs> and 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 it's Aparicio. 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 Excuse me. Yeah. My my apologies to like the future future Oscar nominee Yalitza. All right. Well, all these questions are going to get answered uh, in the wee hours of Tuesday morning. Uh, so uh, if you want to get up and watch it, what is it, Todd? Like five twenty? It's usually when that happens. Something like that. Something like that. Uh, and that's that's Pacific time, so Zach could actually watch it legitimately oh, I, since he's. I I do, I've done it every year since I've been out here. It's exciting to not have to get up that early. Yeah, I mean, it's still early, but it's not crazy early. And uh, Todd will probably within twenty four to forty eight hours of that happening give his reactions to the nominations, and uh, and what he's what he thinks and how his uh, how his predictions uh, panned out as well. And my top 10 biggest snubs and my top 10 coolest first-time nominees. That's the best list right there, is the top 10 coolest first-time nominees. Uh, do, you, do you have a front-runner for that now, if, you're, if your predictions hold? Or have you thought about uh, it yet? I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of the acting nominees that are going to be first-timers. I mean, I've been looking forward to Adam Driver getting nominated for a while, but I'm not still not entirely sure he's going to get it. I, I I would say the same. If Sam Elliott gets nominated, that'd be that'd be pretty dang cool. Yes. All right. Well, uh, well, uh, we'll be uh, excited to see what ends up getting nominated and uh, being able to shift our conversation to what's going to win instead of what's going to be up. Okay. I just realized we forgot a very important part of our podcast right off the top. Todd, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am drinking Ballantine's Finest Blended Scotch Whiskey, and it is a very crisp, uh, probably the best cheap scotch I've ever actually had. So, Ballantine's. 
Very nice. That reminds me of uh, our uh, our friend and almost sideways contributor, Adam Daly, who is a, a part of the Red and Brown podcast. They very often claim on there that uh, that um, that the Almost Sideways podcast is Jack Daniels and they're Evan Williams. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I always, I always uh, find that appropriate. All right. I like their most recent podcast. Like, I feel like that might have been their best one. And like the the new guy that they had was like brought an interesting perspective. Is that the the wow. recasting of Field of Dreams? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's that's some praise. They got to use that. It's high praise right there. Yeah. All right, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm drinking Agua Fria because there's no way I can get through this podcast uh, drunk. <laughs> I mean, this is way too important. You know, this is like the the top ten movies of the year. I can't, you know, I can't uh, BS my way through this like every other episode. This is special. Yeah. Zach, you got to go get some alcohol. What are you doing? Yeah, I I, I know it's. I tried, you know, it was worth a shot, that excuse. But. A- after we finish talking about our bottom five of the year, Zach, Zach is going to need to take a break. Because af- at that point, he will realize the need for... Uh... The stove is on. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, the stove, stove is, is on. on. Something's <laughs> cooking. <laughs> All right, well, uh, for me, uh, for Christmas this year, I got a giant box of Costco craft brew uh, beer. And so I, I've got the uh, the brown ale and the stout ale with me tonight. Um, it's uh, I'd say it's about what you'd expect from something from Costco, where it's it's not it's not the greatest tasting thing in the world, but it's effective. I mean, that's kind of what Costco is, right? It, it's it's not the best, but it's you effective. You get a lot of it. You just get a lot of it, exactly. So uh, so that's what I'm going with tonight. So uh, cheers, so bro. Cheers. And thanks for getting it for me, Todd. Ah, yeah. No problemo. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Is that a rocket power reference? Yeah. Dude. (laughs) Dude, okay. Let's get into our lists. This is uh, a podcast that uh, we look forward to every year. I think it's a a fun activity getting going through our top top and bottom films of the year. Uh, We're going to start at the bottom... Uh, just really quickly run through five to one, give a little bit about it. Uh, let's start with Zach. Uh, your bottom five of the year. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're, you're right, Terry. Just looking at these films makes me want to go out to Costco and get some Costco beer. I didn't even know they had Costco beer. I've never seen that at my Costco. I, I didn't either I'm until jealous. I opened the box. Yeah. That is making me uh, very thirsty. Okay, yeah. well, I'm going to go through this as quickly and painlessly as possible. Um, so you can get to Costco, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, you know, Costco here closes at like 6 p.m. Is that just a Midwest thing, or is that also where you're at? It, it, I think I that's never a get Kansas thing. I, I think so, yes. Well, and, and the Kansas yeah. Costco doesn't even offer alcohol. I have to go over the border to Missouri. Oh, to get yeah. Anyway, that, that's TMI, though. Let's get to the bottom five of, of the year. Several of the, these films have already been mentioned on the podcast, so if you're really intrigued by uh, their awfulness, I would suggest looking at some of our previous episodes where they're discussed more in, at length. Number five is A Simple Favor, which we reviewed on this podcast. I, I believe I, I disliked it quite a bit more than both of you, but uh, I thought it was pretty, t- pretty terrible, although I 
do remember the one great thing about it was Blake Lively's rep- uh, uh, recipe for a martini. That was the one saving grace mm. of that movie. Uh, number four is Vice, which we reviewed on the last episode. Number three worst film of the year is First Reformed, um, which technically we haven't reviewed on this episode, but the three of us have seen it, and I think we're all in, in uniform agreement about its awfulness. Number two is Green Book, and number one is You Were Never Really Here, which inexplicably got really good reviews. For me, those were kind of interchangeable, one and two. Uh, sometimes Green Book was number one, but both of them are just uh, horrible travesties of movies that you should stay, stay away from like the, like the plague. All right. That, that, that is a, a nice dishonorable mention there. Okay, I'll go next. Um, there are some, uh, some similar movies on my bottom five. Uh, first off, um, I, I think we can... We talked about this before we started the podcast. We can agree that 2018 shaped up to not be a great year for film. Uh, however, one of the things I did notice is I didn't see a lot of really bad movies either um of my bottom five uh three of them are two-star movies which there's some value there it just wasn't wasn't a stellar film and only only two are below that line so um and not below it by very much so i i think there i didn't see a whole lot of bad movies i just didn't see a whole lot of great movies um so with that said uh number five on my bottom five is a simple favor uh, that Zach already mentioned. Um, again, you can go back and listen to our podcast. It it had some some good moments, but it just was more uh, more eye rolling and boring than uh, than clever. Uh, number four is Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, where uh, the first Jurassic World movie was a a fun and uh, creative reimagining of the uh, first Jurassic Park. Fallen Kingdom was a stale and predictable retread of The Lost World, and uh, it, I did not really appreciate it. Uh, number three, The Christmas Chronicles. I, I actually really enjoyed this movie. It's a lot of good holiday fun with Kurt Russell playing Santa Claus. It's just not really a, a well... It's not a good movie, but it's a movie I would definitely watch again, especially when it comes to Christmas time again. Uh, number two, First Reformed. Uh, Ethan Hawke is good. The rest of the movie is garbage. Uh, and number one on my worst movies of the year, Hotel Artemis. Uh, this was the number one movie when we talked about this uh, in the middle of the year. Uh, you got uh, <clears throat> Jodie Foster, Sterling K. Brown running a hotel. Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Tyree Henry, Jeff Goldblum, Sophia Botella, uh, Zachary Quinto, Charlie Day, Dave Bautista. The cast is huge. And... Uh, the movie sucks. Uh, it's a, a movie about um, a hospital for for criminals in the middle of uh, of like post-apocalyptic L.A. It's weird um, and dumb and pointless. So there you go. There's my bottom five. Todd, what do you got? All right. So uh, my number five worst movie, I have Fifty Shades Free. <coughs> uh which is a series that I kind of actually enjoy, but this one was actually really kind of dumb and nothing really worked. Uh, number four was The Catcher Was a Spy. Uh, it's got Paul Rudd playing a baseball player slash World War II spy, which sounded intriguing, but it really is just a drag and it's almost impossible to watch. Uh, number three, I have Vice. I mean, w- listen to our last podcast and you'll know what I actually think about it. 
Uh, number two was Annihilation. Just a just a dumb movie. Apparently it was like really screwed up by the studio, but I mean, some critics still really liked it. I don't really understand that. It was it was really really bad. And uh, to say the ending was borrowed would be an understatement. And my number one worst movie of the year was not actually released in theaters with an HBO movie, but it was Fahrenheit 451 uh, with Michael B. Jordan and uh, Michael Shannon, which should have been good. And it was like a remake of a Truffaut film, but it was a ton of unnecessary action and it was really dull and preachy. And it was one of the worst times I've had at the movies in a long time, even though I wasn't actually at the movies. I was watching on my TV, but it was terrible. It was directed by Ramin Barani who's made some good movies in the past, but this one, yeah, no, really bad. Yeah, Barani's made some great movies, and I remember that got really lukewarm reviews, so it's disappointing to Well, yeah, but it still somehow got, like, an Emmy for, like, uh, best TV movie nomination, which I don't really understand, considering it's got, like, a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't really know who actually liked the movie. All right. So, so Barani's now like the new David Gordon Green. Was once great and now makes trash. Except David Gordon Green made a great movie this year. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe that's a preview of your list. Hmm. Potentially. We'll All right. Well, then, then let's get into those lists. So, uh, I, I I'd like to spend as little time as possible talking about the garbage, so we can actually focus on the 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 films that were great this year. Um, before we get into that, um, Adam Daly has, uh, has given me his top 10. We're not going to predict it like we normally do in our, in our regular power rankings, but I am going to give it so we can give our, our initial reactions here. So, uh, his, um, his top 10, and this is slightly updated from what he, uh, released on his YouTube channel. Uh, number 10, Black Klansman. Uh, number 9, Searching. Number 8, Eighth Grade. Number 7, A Star is Born. Number six, Avengers Infinity War. Number five, A Quiet Place. Number four, Roma. Number three, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Number two, Beautiful Boy. And number one, Revenge. Todd, you know Adam better than anybody. What are your thoughts on his list? That is definitely an Adam list. <laughs> like, I, you hear that list and that's like hearing that Roper named Widows is number one of the year. It's like, yeah, that's as a Roper of a number one since like, Michael Clayton was his number one. It's like so obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say one of the films on here that I um, I'm sad I haven't seen yet, and I'm going to be seeing very soon, and might appear on my top ten after I see it is Eighth Grade. Um, that's one that I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing. Zach, what do you think of uh, of Adam's list? Yeah, I haven't seen Revenge, um, but and I hadn't even really heard of it. But uh, after reading Adam's list and re- looking up the film, it looks really intriguing. So uh, I'll take Adam's word for it. And um, I think he's the only one who actually saw Beautiful Boy and liked it. I feel like that film got pretty much uniformly trashed. So maybe he's onto something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I have did not. You, did you see it, Todd? I haven't seen it. I have not seen it yet. I haven't seen it either. Although I still think Timothy Chalamet could really have a chance at nomination still, but who knows? Yeah, his name's been floating around for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start to look at our top tens. Uh, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Why don't you give me uh, a few films that just missed the list, a couple honorable mentions, and then give me your number ten. 
Should we okay, go with so like movies that we haven't seen yet that possibly could have made our list, or should we do it after? Oh, we could do that too. So yeah, why, why don't you do that? So give a couple honorable mentions, a couple films you still want to see that might make the list, and then uh, and then number ten. Oh, and also yeah. before we get into that, at the end of all of this, uh, we will be revealing what our uh, what our website's top five films of 2018 of of the four of us combined, uh, what our top five are. Okay, Zach, go ahead. Ooh, so many exciting things to look forward to, Terry. Man. Well, um, the joke that we have is that anytime, you know, anytime we make this list, we, we can't do it late enough because inevitably the next film we see is a film that will make our top 10 list. Todd, this happened last year with what, Phantom Thread, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think Call Me By Your Name I hadn't seen, and that immediately was on my top five, like, the, the day after we published this list. So uh, there are a few films that are still out there that are unseen by by us, by me, that uh, I suspect might make my list. The two that immediately jump off the page are Cold War, which has not come to my area yet, uh, the Polish film by the director of Ida, which, again, has gotten universally uh, great reviews. And uh, I really suspect that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is a really cool movie. I've wanted to see it for a long time. I'll probably see it uh, this week at some point, but um, I've heard nothing but great things about it. Uh, I don't love superhero movies, but the things that I've heard about this movie in terms of its its, its style and its diversity um, and its soundtrack really make me excited to see it. You've seen it too, Todd, right? And you liked it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Cool. Um, I'm just going to go read off my numbers uh, 15 through 11, and I won't say too much about them, but at number 15 is Bird Box, a film that was unfairly maligned by the internet community, but actually a really cool uh, thriller released by Netflix. Number 14 is Searching, which was on Adam's list, really underrated uh, thriller. Number 13 is A Star is Born. Number 12 is Shoplifters. And number 11 is Wildlife. And then that brings me to my actual top 10 list. And I'll start off that top 10 list by revealing my number 10 pick, which is a film that feels like uh, it comes from a different time and a different generation. uh, And it, it reminds us about the life of teenagers and they're absorbed with skating and uh, skateboarding is such a way of life for these kids. And no, it is not mid-90s. Ah, you thought I was going in that direction, but no, it's not. That The film that I'm thinking of is actually Skate Kitchen, which was not a film that got a big release this year. Uh, it was kind of overshadowed by mid-90s, but it is also a film about teenagers and their love of skateboarding, except in mid-90s, it's mostly this group of unruly boys in the Los Angeles area. In Skate Kitchen, it is about a group of young women in the New New York City area, and it stars uh, Rochelle, uh, uh, let me get her name right, uh, gosh, I'm messing this up, I need to get her name, Rochelle Vinberg uh, plays the lead character, and uh, Camille, and she's this kind of outsider girl, and she finds uh, through Instagram this uh, group of girl skaters, known and, and their collective is known as Skate Kitchen, and so um, as this kind of outsider, she, she learns more about the I don't know, the social cues and the relationships of the group. And she brands herself within the group and she meets new friends, makes uh, some enemies and some feuds along the way. Um, but really what's cool about the movie is that it's, I think, a really empowering story.
story. Um, it doesn't really show the kind of catty vindictiveness that we sometimes see in female-centered films and films about female relationships. These are really strong, independent um, young women who are uh, authoritative and take control of the situation. The skating scenes are really awesome, and the characterization is uh, really complex. And we see, uh, again, how the, how the relationships materialize and then sort of uh, deconstruct at certain parts uh, of the film. Um, the director is Crystal Moselle, who, and this is her first feature film. You might know her from uh, directing the documentary The Wolf Pack, which was about a, a group of an isolated family in New York City. Um, this is a, a strong first fe uh, feature uh, debut, and I would encourage you, not just for those of you who like mid-90s, but for those of you who are just looking for any strong coming-of-age film to check out Skate Kitchen. All right. I have not seen Skate Kitchen. Have you seen that, Todd? I have not. Check it out. It's awesome. All right. It's, it, it is the skateboarding movie of 2018, not mid-90s. Okay. I have a different one, actually, on my list, so that's interesting. Hmm. Well, we'll get to that soon. I'll go next. Um, I mentioned before, this was not a, a stellar year for films. Uh, I look at my list. I gave uh, five four-stars, uh, four-star ratings this year. Uh, that's my lowest since 2005. Um, I look at what ended up around my my 10, 11 range on my list, and I even look to like last year. That would have been like in the 20 to 25 range, if uh, if it were last year. So this was this was not a a year for great film, but it was a year for a lot of good films. So uh, let me go uh, first with some some movies I haven't seen yet that might crack my list, and there's two that jump out to me. Um, one I already mentioned is Eighth Grade. And uh, the other one is uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. I haven't had a chance to go see Barry Jenkins' new film, and I could see that jumping up on my list as well. All right, so let's start. Uh, I'll start like uh, Zach did, giving you my 15 through 11 and then revealing my number 10. Uh, at number 15, I have Private Life with uh, Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn. Uh, a very uh, interesting um, kind of character study of, uh, of a... An older couple going through uh, trying to have a trying to have a kid. Uh, number fourteen, Deadpool two. Uh, I I love the first one. The second one was uh, it did not disappoint. Uh, number thirteen is uh, Vice. I know Todd and Zach or yeah Todd and Zach hated it. Uh, I loved it uh, as well as uh, as number twelve on my list, which is Green Book. Um, those are two films that are getting a lot of a lot of critical acclaim, and I'm the only one on the podcast that sees what they what they saw in them. And number eleven, Incredibles two. It's a sequel we waited 14 years for, and uh, it definitely did not disappoint in how uh, in how that that film went. Uh, all right, which leaves me with number ten. Number ten on my list was one of the more um, uh, anticipated films of the year, and it did not disappoint. If anyone's going to put a blockbuster on their list, it's going to be me. So number 10 is Avengers of Infinity War. Um, <clears throat> anyone who's a fan of the MCU uh, was, was looking forward to this movie. And my thoughts going into it were I was, I was really excited for it. However, after Age of Ultron, I was also quite skeptical. And uh, it, it blew me away. It had one of those great cliffhanger endings which leaves you just guessing and hoping for the next one to come out soon 
Uh, we don't only have to wait a couple more months. Uh, I I loved how this one played out. They did a, an amazing job uh, giving enough time to all the different stars and all the different characters we've grown to love over the last 10 years. Uh, I, I loved it. So Avengers Infinity War is my number 10. All right. Todd, what do you got? Okay, so I saw 125 uh, 2018 movies. My thumbs up percentage is 51.2%, which is maybe slightly below average. <coughs> but yeah, it really was not a great, great year. I only have 19 three and a half or more star movies, so I'll just run through the ones that didn't make my list. I have uh, one that was not a theatrical release, The Tale with uh, Laura Dern. And then I have a couple Nicolas Cage crazy movies, Mom and Dad and Mandy would uh, were just outside, along with Black Klansman, Searching, Mid-90s, Upgrade, a Netflix movie called Small Town Crime, and If Bill Street Could Talk uh, came in at number 11, just behind my number 10, which was Carlos Lopez Estrada's Blind Spotting. And it was his uh, directorial debut, and it was written by the stars of the movie, David Diggs and Rafael Casal, both Oscar-worthy in their performances. Uh, Diggs plays Colin, and he's uh, near the end of his probation, and his lifelong friend is Miles, played by Casal, and he keeps pulling him in difficult situations, and he eventually leads them into this... uh, situation where they're definitely in trouble again and it has this aura to it where it's impossible not to get caught up in uh it's a very confident movie it definitely draws from spike lee there's actually one part where Diggs breaks out into rap and it would seem corny into in any other movie but for some reason here it works it's a yet another great bay area set movie about like race and class and which is becoming a really fruitful uh, a venue for a, a lot of great movies recently, and uh, these are filmmakers definitely keep an eye on. But Blind Spotting is a really good movie. That's my number ten. All right. Yeah, it is a really good movie. I just recently watched it, and I would have guessed that it actually would have been higher on your list. It's like a classic Todd movie. There's very strong Todd elements in it, and I also think it's a little bit like a sort of race relations version of Sideways, just a tiny bit. I actually thought about Sideways too. I was gonna say that. Like and if we were, ma- if we were making Miles, a movie so. that of like uh, movies from the year that were most like Sideways, I would have said Blind Spotting. <laughs> Not Green Book. <laughs> Not Green Book. No. no. That does sound like an interesting list to do at some point. Movies that most movies feel like, like Sideways. sideways. There's a lot of them. Blind Spotting is one I have not seen, uh, but it's one I would like to see, especially uh, David Diggs, uh, Hamilton alum. There, I uh, I would definitely want to see what he had to put put together there. All right, Zach, number nine. Okay, well, number nine is one of the two films on my top ten list that are non-English language, which is usually that's somewhat low for me actually. Um, it is a film from France that I briefly mentioned on the last podcast. And the film is called Custody, and the director is Xavier Legrand, or Xavier Legrand. 
And uh, it's probably the most disturbing movie of 2018. It's a movie that was really, really unsettling when I saw it um, and has not really left my memory since. Um, It tells the story of a family that is in the midst of a divorce. The parents are separating, getting a divorce, and the opening scene kind of shows this custody hearing where the parents, each of them, the mother and father, are kind of pleading their case for why they should get full custody of the kids. And we kind of get the interpretation in the opening scenes that they're actually both good parents because they plead so much why they want to keep their kids. Um, But as the film goes along, we can kind of see that the father character, who's played in a brilliant performance by a French actor named Denis Ménochet, um, is pretty deranged and pathological and uh, violent in his demeanor toward his family and and toward others. Um, He slaps his kid around and chastises him when he's late uh, getting picked up by his father um and the and the kid who's played by thomas uh, gioria there's there's uh the look on his face that he gets when he sees his father it's it's a look of absolute terror and it's great uh child acting um anyway this is a really unsettling um you know disturbing film because it shows the descent of this father who's upset and bitter not so much that he doesn't get custody but just the fact that you know his ex-wife would dare spite him. There's so much machismo um, and chauvinism in, in his character. And the last 20 minutes shows how the relationship really devolves into um, violence and destruction. Uh, and my eyes were glued to the screen, and frankly, it's, I can't think of a, of a more terrifying 20-minute sequence in any movie um, in 2018 than, than the end of custody. Um, you know, brutality and uh, horror um, is be- is sometimes best when it's rooted in realism, and uh, this is absolutely a, a really strong, powerful entry in that category. So check it out if you can. I don't know if it got much of a theatrical release in the United States, but it is available for streaming on Canopy Custody, my number nine film of the year. All right. I have not seen that, but it does sound like a very interesting film. Number nine on my list is one that I would not have thought would have made my list at the beginning of the year, even though I was very looking forward to it. Uh, number nine is Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, the latest installment of the uh, of the series that has been going on for 20 years now, over 20 years, uh, following Ethan Hunt and his team from the IMF. Uh, this was one of the better outings, I felt, of the Mission Impossible series. Um, it it had some uh, some amazing uh, amazing stunts, amazing action, uh, a great plot that you kind of saw some of the twists coming. However, it still sent you on an amazing ride. Uh, I loved it. I love this series. It's one of my all time favorite uh, favorite series. And they announced recently that there are going to be two more coming out, in like twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. So uh, something definitely to be looking forward to, but this one was uh, was a superb outing in the series, and I I'm kind of surprised it got high enough to get onto my list, but it did. So number nine, Mission Impossible Fallout. I'm surprised too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, it wouldn't have made my list any other year, but just because there haven't been that many great films, it's there. Well, the stunt work alone is uh, remarkable, and knowing Tom Cruise and how he performs so many of his own stunts, uh, 
you know, it's it, it's pretty impressive work. I believe this made Gruson or Leech's top 10, too. I can't remember which one, but uh, it got Leech. really good reviews. So I don't think you're totally unjustified in, in putting it that high. Yeah, yeah. All right, Todd, number nine. Uh, my number nine is a foreign film by Lucrecia Martel. It's called Zama. Uh, it's a crazy movie. Like at first, it's like a Barry Lyndon type costume drama, and then it turns way more extreme. It's about this Spanish officer in the 18th century who's stuck in this remote Paraguay village, and he's like w- waiting for a long time to be like reassigned to Buenos Aires, which would be a much better and uh, much more safe uh, assignment. And uh, it explores this mental strain that that Zama goes through while being isolated and uh, the the psychological deterioration uh, that he has knowing that his hope is pretty much completely gone. And then it takes a turn in the final act that has like this most haunting images of anything I saw in 2018. the, the implications of everything going on and uh, the shots will stick with you long after the credits for sure it's uh, it may not be as exciting of a watch as anything that I s- saw last year but uh, it was as rewarding and thought provoking as anything I saw so Zama is definitely a movie you should check out yeah I haven't seen it but uh, I there's a critic online who I read named uh, Dennis Schwartz and he named it his number one film of 2017 but he was obviously a huge fan of it too. Yeah, he probably was at some random festival that showed it or something. So, uh, just you know, as sort of a, a brief interruption for a second, is there going to be any film that appears on all three of our lists? I mean, it really doesn't seem like it this year. That's a great question. I don't know. Should we take uh, wagers on this? I would put the uh, over under like what one and a half, like, or maybe even just a half. It, I, w- I mean, I would just put it at one. I think I think there's a good chance that there's one, but I'm I'm not sure that two is really a possibility. I I can think of one. I don't want to say what it is, but there's one that I think will appear, but I'm not sure. Um, I th- I think it just speaks to the fact that this year was so like all over the place. I mean, there was wasn't really one like unifying film. You know, like when Boyhood came out, that was so obvious that it was great. You know, everyone just applauded it and. This year there was no no films really like that. I will say looking at uh looking at 2017, no film appeared on all three of our lists. So it's not unprecedented. When we recorded or, or when we the... recorded, I think there was I think Get Out was on all three of our lists, but um okay. But yeah, I don't think in there's a there there's a film anymore that's on all three. I mean, is there even going to be a film that makes two of our lists? I mean, I guess we'll have to see. I, I, I think, don't know. I think there, there's going to be one that makes two, but I don't know. I, I, guess, I don't know. I, I guess we'll find out. Well, my number eight film is a film that uh, does intersect somewhat with Adam's list. It's, it's also Adam's number eight film, and maybe there's a symbolic reason for that, because the title of this film is Eighth Grade. I don't know. Maybe Adam and I thought we were being clever, but um, it did just kind of naturally fit in this spot. Um Eighth Grade was one of the real big crowd pleasers of this year, and nothing would make me happier than to see Elsie Fisher get nominated for Best Actress uh, when they do the announcements on Tuesday. I don't know, Todd, maybe that's a nice uh, In the Valley of Elo pick. I I think it's possible. I mean, she got a Golden Globe nomination. That'd be cool. But um, it would be awesome. Um, Eighth Grade is... uh, 
you know, uh, I, I already talked a little bit about uh, my number 10 film, Skate Kitchen, as a coming-of-age film about a young girl. Uh, this is uh, similar in, in the respect that it's a, a young female protagonist, but it's a really di- it's a very different film um, about uh, Kayla Day, who is um, uh, obsessed with making YouTube videos and Instagram posts, and all the while she's in real life, face-to-face, a very shy, timid uh, teenager, and it's about uh, the final few weeks of eighth grade and her um, ascent into high school and her transition. And, um, you know, it's not a film that has uh, a lot of heroes or, or uh, villains per se. It's not really a John Hughes type movie. It's much more grounded in the realities of the 21st century with social media. And um, I don't know, the, it, it doesn't have um, really like strong messages per se but I think that's one of the things that's one of the strengths of it uh it just kind of shows the realistic day-to-day activities of this really uncertain um ambivalent teenager and to see her like go into these uh circumstances some of which are really I don't know uncomfortable and unfriendly um it's it, it, it's not always an easy movie to watch because it reminds you of when you were in eighth grade and I'm sure a lot of people have said that um but I think that that, that says something the fact that you know this is a movie very much in, in enveloped in 2018 culture but the messages and the situations are sort of universal um the performances by Elsie Fisher and Josh Hamilton as her father are pitch perfect uh everyone has talked about the scene toward the end of the film when they have a real true father-daughter bonding moment over a bonfire in the backyard um the performances and the dialogue really ring true it's a film that i think uh should be watched by all generations the r rating is absurd this is a perfect movie for teenagers um eighth grade is a treasure and i can't imagine anyone who's seen it having disagreed with me so terry go out and check it out especially because you teach eighth graders. i know what having, are you doing not having... seeing that movie yeah, being an eighth grade teacher, this was one of my more anticipated films, and I just didn't get a chance to see it in theaters. So um, I, I actually have the Netflix disc sitting downstairs on my DVD player right now. I just haven't had a chance to put it in yet. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that one uh, the next chance I get. Gucci! Uh, see, are you, are you quoting the movie or my classroom? I really don't know at this point. <laughs> Probably. Uh, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. Number eight on my list is another film that we reviewed on this podcast. It is one that has been talked about, um, really for the last 12 months on our podcast. There may or may not be a really stupid bet that Zach made about it. That is The Favorite from Yorgos Lanthimos, starring Olivia Colman, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz. Uh, like I said, we've already talked about this, so I won't spend too much more time on it, but the three lead performances um, make this movie special. The, uh, the amazing cinematography and, uh, and camera work is outstanding. Uh, it, it is, it is a, a great film to watch. Uh, it is uh, a film with some unexpected twists and turns in how it is told. Uh, it, it, it breaks kind of the, the period piece style in a way. I think Zach compared it to Amadeus when we reviewed it last. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, and it is my number eight. Awesome. 
And my early pick for Best Picture way back when. In last January, Todd picked the favorite to be Best Picture. And it's going to get the nomination. And it I think it still has a shot at winning. And see, this is why I shouldn't drink on podcasts anymore. I mean, that's like, you know, <laughs> perfect example. Unless we're in Vegas. Yes, know? of course. What was that? Was that actually a part of a podcast when you made that bet? Or was that just us talking? I can't remember if that was... Mm. No, I think, off I the think record. Sad, sadly, the details are available online if uh, if you look them up. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking that day. Uh, that's how, that, that can describe most of your bets, Zach. Todd, number True. eight. <laughs> All right, my number eight is a movie from earlier in the year. It was called Leave No Trace. It's directed by Deborah Granick. Uh, this movie was an experience, and I can't think of a better director that could have directed it than uh, Granite could have. Uh, it's about Will and Tom, which are Ben Foster and Thomasin McKenzie, both totally Oscar-worthy in their performances. They're a father and daughter who live in the woods outside of Portland with no money or friends or constraints of society. Uh, one thing leads to another, they're forced to move, and they are put in social services, and they're longing to get back to where they were. Uh, it's a fascinating look at what some people value in life and their existence and how some people deal with PTSD. Uh, they, you see them try to adapt begrudgingly, and uh, I don't know, it's a, a crowning achievement for Ben Foster, who's probably the best actor in the world without a nomination at this point. Uh, the movie pretty much has very little plot and very little dialogue, but it's an experiment or experience, and it's worth... Uh, it's worth going through. It's an emotional journey for these two totally fleshed out characters. I think it's better than Granick's Oscar nominated uh, Winner's Bone and I have no idea why it didn't catch on more uh, but Leave No Trace is a fantastic movie and that's my number 8. Yeah, doesn't it have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes? It's like one of the few films to have a perfect Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it still does. That sounds right. All right, Zach, number seven. All right, well, now we have our first official overlap, at least among the three of us. Number seven on my list is The Favorite, as mentioned by Terry. Um, I guess the only thing I would really add, I, I, I think this movie really could um, get popular with Oscar voters, and, and it could get a surge in the next few weeks, in part because it's a historical piece, and as, as Terry uh, mentioned, it's visually spectacular. I mean, the cinematography, the costumes, the decor uh, is overwhelming. It's a truly theatrical experience. Um, watching it, you could almost watch the movie with the audio completely turned off. It's just a visual uh, display that is uh, amazing um, and sensuous to watch. Um, I suspect that like future cinematographers are going to talk about the favorite, that the cinematography of the favorite is some, as you know, cinematography they admire. Um, and it's also an actor's movie, too. There are three amazing performances in this movie. And one of the cool things about it is that they they all, like, work off each other really well. It's not like um, it's overacting. It's not uh, melodramatic and over the top. It's actually really... Some, some of the best instances of acting in the movie is the is the more subdued scenes and the more subtle kind of just the twitches of the face and the eye movements and things like that that, that really get under your skin. Um, 
gosh, of the three of them, I, you know, Olivia Coleman's getting the most Oscar buzz, but Emma Stone, I think it's overlooked in this movie. She is just crazy in this movie. I mean, she's not, for that role, it's, uh, you would probably not think Emma Stone is the first actress to come to your head, but she is awesome in the, in the movie, playing the somewhat against type as this really conniving, um, you know, just shrewd Machiavellian uh, person. Um, the movie is uh, really, really fun. I was not expecting to like it as much as I did because Yorgos Lanthimos is not necessarily my favorite director. Um, I was not really a big fan of his previous two films. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, this was a film that was not scripted by him. Some people have said that this is his most mainstream film to date. Whatever you want to call it, this is his uh, knockout home run film, um, at least since Dogtooth. And uh, I, I think it's a film that will be popular with Oscar voters. It is um, certainly a film that Oscar Knight, uh, you know, might, might play spoiler for Best Picture. Who knows? Um, but number seven for me is the favorite. All right. Yeah, and you could really say, uh, I mean, if you include, uh, include, uh, oh, who's Nicholas Holt in there too? You could say that it. I mean, there's four really strong, stellar performances in that in that movie too. Another awesome uh, prediction was that Zach said that he was sure he would give it two stars. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, I, I was, not, I, I didn't have very high expectations going into it because you know Yorgos Lanthimos's last two films were so awful. I mean, no offense to Ben out there, who uh, shout out to the Red and Brown podcast. You know, he loved uh, the the what this the uh, killing, killing of a sacred deer. deer. But um, yeah, I, I, w- I was not expecting very much going into it, and, and usually I think period pieces are somewhat overblown. And this seemed this seemed like a movie that was programmed for the Oscars, and for for whatever reason, go figure. Maybe because it's actually high quality, the Oscars seem to be ignoring it. So award season tends to be ignoring it mostly, except for Olivia Coleman. So go figure. It's a great film. Check it out. All right. We, we gave it a thrice reviewed, right? Yeah, it was thrice approved. It was thrice approved. Yeah. I think there were too many abused rabbits in it for the Oscars. <laughs> I, I will say, I think I think my favorite acceptance speech at the Golden Globes was Olivia Coleman. Just how, how shocked she was and how you could tell that everything she said was completely genuine, off the cuff, and hilarious at the same time. Uh, I, I loved it. All right, number yes. seven on my list is... Uh, is one that Zach mentioned that, that he still wants to see, and that is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, this was one that, when I saw the previews for it, I was not really that into it. It looked like a gimmick. It looked like it was going to be just corny. And then when I started to see some of the reviews for it, I thought it looked like something I needed to see, and I was completely blown away and surprised by it. Uh, this film that is... Um, really brought to us by the uh, Christopher Miller and Phil Lord, the guys behind the Lego movie. Um, Phil Lord helped write it. They produced it. Um, It really brings uh, this kind of tired genre of comic book films into a completely new light of really turning the film into a comic book in a lot of ways. Uh, the vocal talent behind it is uh, amazing, from Shamik Moore playing the the uh, lead character Miles Morales, to Chris Pine, Jake Johnson, Haley Steinfeld, um, John Mulaney, Nicolas Cage playing all the different versions of Spider-Man that pop up. Uh, Lily Tomlin is Aunt May once again. Todd's boy, Brian Tyree Henry. 
Uh, Mahershala Ali is in it. Catherine Hahn plays Doc Ock. Leah Schreiber is in it. I mean, the uh, Zoe Kravitz. The cast is huge. Uh, uh, Lauren Velez, uh, LaGuardia herself is in this movie. I, the, the cast is gigantic. They all do an amazing job. It was fresh. It was original. And like I said, it did what I thought was impossible. It brought something new and fresh and unique to a genre that we seem to be um, beating to death right now uh, in Hollywood. So uh, I, I was so thrilled by how good this movie was. Uh, and it is number seven on my list. A solid number seven. It was absolutely the best superhero movie of 2018. That is for sure. Which is saying something, because Avengers Infinity War was pretty dang good too. Yeah, they're they're right next to each other, but yeah, Spider Verse was totally legit, and I was totally surprised by it. Awesome. All right, Todd, number seven. Uh, okay, my number seven. Uh, the director has been mentioned previously in this podcast. It's David Gordon Green's Halloween. Uh, this is probably the most fun I had at the movies in 2018. The Halloween franchise pretty much invented the slasher genre, and uh, there were so many sequels, and actually. A couple pretty good uh, remakes by Rob Zombie, but the series has been commercially dead for like decades. And so, insert Danny McBride and his team of writers saying, Yeah, let's just like pretend there was only one Halloween and let's make our own sequel 40 years later. And so, Michael, Michael Myers is still in his uh, max security prison, and Laurie Strode, still Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, has been haunted by the shape of Michael for, you know, years, and she's pretty much the only person who ever got away from him. And there's also this, like, team of podcasters who do what podcasters do, which is, you know, get obsessed with serial killers and report on them and follow them. And the eventual confrontation between Michael and Lori is as satisfying as anything uh, that you could possibly imagine it would be. And David Gordon Green has a real talent for this type of filmmaking. He, uh, but he's just so weird in his choices that he hasn't really made a good movie in over a decade. Uh, but Halloween is it's modern, it's violent, it's moody, it still pays homage. It rejuvenated the franchise and the genre and shows that you could have a woman uh, protagonist over 60 and still have it be an absolute box office smash. Halloween is an awesome surprise of 2018. That is my number seven. Oh, wow. Right. I did not see it, but uh, now I'll have to check it out. I take back what I said about David Gordon Green. Good. That is much more commercial than I than I uh, saw you going on your uh, top ten there, Todd. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was that was circling around my, my top movies for the entire year, and I was surprised that it stayed there too, but I mean... It really was as memorable as anything I saw. Awesome. All right, Zach, number six. All right, number six is Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, and that is If Bill Street Could Talk, based on the book by James Baldwin. And this is a uh, marvelous film starring Kiki Lane as Tish Rivers, whose uh, boyfriend is... Uh, sent to prison unjustifiably for a crime that he does not commit or did not commit. Uh, the film is set in New York City in the early 1970s and it is 
technically a historical piece. But what I liked so much about the film is that Barry Jenkins has a really uncanny way of making the story feel universal. Um, it's certainly a commentary on uh, police brutality and uh, the racial prejudices involved in the judicial system, but not just from the 1970s, but also its parallels today. But Barry Jenkins is, a, of course, a very subtle and sophisticated director, so he doesn't really throw it in your face. It's uh, more things that you pick up on as the story goes along. Um, the story has a lot of facets because we learn about this supposed crime that was committed. We see it in this kind of flashback structure that moves um, from the present to the past frequently throughout the film. And I think that's a useful device because it helps set up not just... Um, uh, Stephen James's character's innocence, obviously, but also the love, the true love of uh, the two characters, um, the Tish and Fanny. And uh, that love is, is really powerful um, in the film. And somehow, even in spite of illustrating these prejudices and this discrimination and, you know, basically how uh, systematically the system is designed to suppress and oppress uh, black people. Somehow, in spite of all of that, the film has a message of hope and optimism, and that is based on the love that is found in family and friends and uh, the relationships cultivated between people who are in love and especially parents. And so um, it's a really marvelous film, beautifully shot. I mean, Barry Jenkins' aesthetic now is, is well, well documented. Um, I think this is, he's, you know, with this and, and Moonlight um, and Medicine for Melancholy, he's quickly establishing himself as one of the finest directors we have working today. I cannot wait to see what the next 20, 30 years bring from Barry Jenkins. Um, I hope this film gets multiple Academy Award nominations. Uh, number six, If Beale Street Could Talk. Like I said, oh, that's one choice. I still need to see. All right. Number six on my list. Uh, spent the majority of the year as my number one, uh, as it was one that came out quite early on, and that is A Quiet Place. Uh, brought to us by, who knew he was a great filmmaker, John Krasinski. Uh, I can't wait to see what he does next, but this is a, an amazing film. Uh, this thriller that... It leaves you on the edge of your seat the whole time. It really feels like a throwback in a lot of ways, and a film that will go down as a classic that will be uh, that'll be watched for years to come. Uh, watching Emily Blunt and John Krasinski, this real life couple, play this couple on screen, you can see the instant chemistry there. And another thing I I thought of in in looking back on this film is how great of a year it was uh, for child actors. I mean, uh, watching the Critics Choice Awards last week. And seeing um, seeing the best young actor category, uh, and Elsie Fisher won as she's kind of been the critical darling for eighth grade. However, looking at Millicent Simmons in A Quiet Place gave an outstanding performance in in using very little. I mean, she didn't speak at all because she was playing a, a deaf girl. But uh, it was um, it was an amazing performance and uh, something that has stuck with me. Uh, since I saw it in the theaters back in April. So A Quiet Place is my number six. Well, Millicent Simmons actually is deaf, and she was also incredible in last year's Wonderstruck by Todd Haynes. Oh, yeah, and that's so, right. Yeah, she's great in A Quiet Place, too. Yeah, that It's awesome that she's actually had roles that she could play in that. Yeah, mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. All right, Todd, number six. 
Okay, my number six is uh, the best documentary of 2018, as well as the best skateboarding movie of 2018, and that is Minding the Gap, uh, directed by Bing Liu. Uh, he was one of three best friend skateboarders in Illinois, and for about 12 years he started filming uh, him and his buddies just messing around, skateboarding around, talking about life, and the film is a lot of fun for like the first like half an hour, and then it becomes... Uh, uh, after it, I mean, it kind of is like a companion piece to mid-90s in that way, and then it sort of becomes an essay about about race and abuse and class and what it means, like, really to be a man in modern America. And Lou, as a filmmaker, especially as an editor, like, he's, he's made this, like, document of something that should be absolutely cherished. It's, it's an amazing film, and it uses skateboarding only as a backdrop, but, uh, he has a deft hand uh, with the with the camera. I can't wait to see what he does next. It never approaches exploitation or pretension. It's it's just this really really awesome documentary. And so, minding the gap was something that I have not stopped thinking about since I watched it. That's my number six. All right, that's a great choice. I've yet to see that. I'm sure it is awesome. And I believe that was one of A.O. Scott's four four way tie for number one am i right yeah like, that was one of the four yeah yeah somewhat gimmicky in his pick but yeah that that one looked awesome it, it basically just sounds like what fourth grade made in mid 90s yeah i had thought that too <laughs> <laughs> so you know a banner year for skateboard movies i mean that's kind of random yeah, yeah. but I, yeah, there really know. hasn't been like there, there's been like one skateboard movie in a year. Like there was like Lords of Dogtown, there was Paranoid Park, and there was Dogtown and Z Boys. They were all like a few years apart, but yeah, this year, awesome. None of them were maybe Larry Clark or Gus Van Sant. Amazing. <laughs> all right, Zach, number five. All right, number five on my list is also a documentary, although not the same documentary as Todd's. Uh, it's my choice for the best documentary of the year, and that is Three Identical Strangers, directed by Tim Wardle. And uh, this is the story about three identical strangers. Uh, their names are Robert, Eddie, and David, and they all uh, grew up in the New York uh, metropolitan area in the 1970s and 80s. Two of them meet in a college. The third one sees their name in the newspaper, and they all kind of realize, hey, we uh, are identical triplets. How did that happen? So uh, the movie kind of spotlights their tabloid and publicity in the 1980s. And for the first half, it's sort of a fun romp. We kind of discover, you know, like they actually have similar experiences and interests. And um, it's sort of a fun exploration of, the, of their characters as they get to know each other. But then the movie takes a really interesting turn about midway through. And and we discover why they were separated and I won't go into that but the reasons are maybe not surprisingly somewhat ominous and mysterious and uh, it really begs the question about uh, the differences between nature versus nurture. Um, this is a movie that uh, really captivated me at both an emotional and intellectual level because it's very much about um, ethics, the ethics of psychology and psychological testing, but also about personality development. And so I think if, you know, if you're curious about elements of human nature and uh, cognitive development, this is a perfect documentary for that, but it's also a perfect documentary for um, understanding the limitations 
limitations in uh, psychological experimentation. And again, I'm, try I'm trying to be careful with what I say because I don't want to spoil it because it has a pretty amazing twist in it. Um, the movie is pretty thrilling. Um, it's uh, really well made. There's a lot of solid interviews throughout, a lot of archival footage. These three were actually a lot more popular and, and uh, you know, uh, accessible and visible than, than I would have realized. They even had a cameo appearance, I, I believe, in the Madonna movie, Desperately Seeking Susan. So um, it's a really cool movie, great documentary, exactly the kind of documentary you want. You want to be informed, you want to learn something, you want to laugh, you want to cry. It's it right there. Three Identical Strangers, number five film of the year. I should have mentioned that as uh, one of the films that I uh, had not seen yet that I really wanted to that could have topped uh, crack my list because that is definitely one of the the more anticipated ones I still need to see. Yeah, it's a great film. Ch check it out for sure. Have you seen it, Todd? I can't remember. I still have not seen it. No. Well, now you know your homework. We got a, got a lot of homework after this podcast, I guess. It's on my Netflix queue. <laughs> Here we <laughs> there go. There we go. All right. Well, number five on my list is uh, my first four star movie of the year. Uh, this was, going into the year, probably my most anticipated film. Um, it may not have hit the insanely lofty expectations that I had for it, but it was still uh, absolutely outstanding, and like I said, still worth a four-star rating, and that is First Man. Uh, this, uh, the, the story of Neil Armstrong, uh, written in, or, uh, brought to us by Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling, Claire Foy, an all-star cast uh, portraying all these different um, uh, recognizable names from NASA. Well, recognizable to the few of us that are obsessed with that time period of the space race uh, or who are fans of Apollo 13. Um, Ryan Gosling gives such a subtle uh, performance playing Neil Armstrong, who is such a very reserved and quiet character. Claire Foy ends up being the one that uh, that has kind of stolen the show and is where it is going to get recognized. Uh, I can't believe this didn't really catch on in uh, at the box office, and I'm shocked it's not getting more attention uh, when we talk about the Academy Awards, because it should. I think I saw someone, I forget who, but someone tweeted out uh, in the last week or two uh, five years from now, we are going to look back on 2018 and ask ourselves why we failed a first man, or why we failed first man, because it was it's it's such a great movie, and for whatever reason, uh, it's not getting recognized as that. Uh, but it, I mean, you look at other other great space movies uh, throughout. Uh, throughout the years, uh, stuff like Apollo 13, Contact, things like that. This this belongs right in that conversation, and uh, and deservedly so. So, uh, First Man is my number five. Well, Apollo 13 and Contact were also movies that were overlooked by the Oscars. So maybe it's just joining that. That's a valid long point. Line of, and Space Cowboys too. Where was the nomination there? Oh yes, yes. How could I omit? the most notorious of the uh, of the NASA films. But at the same time, how many how many directors really have three straight movies that are so consistently nominated everywhere by the Academy? Because that, that'd be what Chazelle would have had. I mean, there's Scorsese with uh, 2002 to 2006, he had that, but 
that's really rare. Maybe they just got a especially little exhausted s- by by Chazelle. Especially to start his career with yeah. with three straight just knock it out of the park like that. I mean, the guy like just turned 34 I think today. And he he's already I mean, he's won his Oscar for best director and I wouldn't necessarily say this one is his best, but I mean, it to say this this belongs in the conversation with La La Land and Whiplash is, is impressive. So, I honestly think there's some dark horse chance that it could still sneak into the best picture race just because I think there are enough people that really, really like the movie. But it's, I don't know. I, I think it was misunderstood simply because Neil Armstrong was such a quiet, reserved character that they, they just found it boring because Neil Armstrong was kind of boring. But um, but I think that just showed the the beauty of the performances and how true it was to what actually happened and who Neil Armstrong, what his character really was all about. Yeah. All right, Todd, number five. All right, uh, number five on my list is one of those indie movies that I know that I saw and no one else did or probably will see. Uh, it was directed by Matthew Porterfield. Uh, it's called Solar's Point. Uh, it's about a small-time drug dealer played with ease by a guy named McCall Lombardi. Uh, he just gets out of jail, and he's on heavy probation, and so he's trying to stay out of trouble despite returning to his, like, rundown hometown and living with his father and constantly getting approached by junkies and fellow, like, drug dealer colleagues. Uh, it's a really good slice-of-life film, and... Like, you're seeing a man trying to change his life, but the environment sort of prevents that. It's like seeing Jesse Pinkman trying to, like, get out of the business at the height of his Captain Cook persona. Uh, But it's a fantastic character study, and a really sneaky, sneaky great cast, uh, and one that has stuck with me quite a bit. It's available on Prime. I I recommend it. I hate how movies like this don't get an audience, but maybe it just is a Todd movie, because it is sort of a lot like uh, Blind Spotting, but... uh, Solar's Point is a really good movie, and it definitely earned its spot on my top ten. Todd, when you mentioned that you're one of the few that actually watched it, you're not kidding. It only has 421 votes on IMDb right now. There we go. But it's on Prime, <laughs> so it should have more, right? It's yes. It's got Daisy Beats. It's got, it's, got some, it's got some really good actors in it. I'm just looking at Jim Belushi and Tom Geary. Really? Yeah, yeah, they're in it too. Yeah, Sne- like I said, sneaky good cast. I'm not saying it's like an all-star cast, but it's got some good actors in it's it. It's got Smalls in it. Nice. Yeah, he plays like this, uh, this like really fiery, uh, like drug dealers, like henchman dude. He's he's crazy in that movie. All right, Zach, number four. All right. Well, how many votes did you say that that film had, Terry? Four hundred twenty-one. All right, well, I can beat Todd by that. I can beat Todd by about 50 votes. My number four film has a grand total of 373 votes <laughs> currently on IMDb. This is now what our list is turning into. Who can have the more obscure film on their list? Yes, I win. Okay, uh, my number four film is a film I've actually mentioned on the podcast before. It is a film that was released very early in 2018. I saw it Super Bowl Sunday 2018. And the film is called Vizanti. It is directed by the Brazilian filmmaker Daniela Tomas. 
and it is set in the 1820s in Brazil, and it, it takes place on a plantation, and it tells the story of this rich slave owner named Antonio, who's early in the scene, his wife and his wife dies in childbirth, and uh, later in the film, he um, he befriends this other family that eventually lives on his plantation and he actually marries the 12 year old daughter in the uh, family and it's a very creepy uh, relationship although again probably not too unlike real relationships uh, real child marriages in, in that era um it's also a story about the complex dynamics of the slave trade on the plantation. Um, Antonio really kind of removes himself uh, from um, the action on uh, in the in the farm, and uh, the slaves are attempting to resist his uh, control of the farm. It's also about this girl who's put into this marriage way before she's ready for it. Uh, about her friendships with some of the slave children. It's a complex, dark, and kind of brooding film. It's shot in beautiful black and white, and it covers a lot of different characters in a lot of different terrain, and I think it's it's really uh, interesting in looking at the relationships between the characters and maybe what maybe if there's some kind of symbolic meaning about um, race relations uh, in the film. Um, I don't know exactly what it is. I, I don't always know exactly what the filmmaker's trying to say, but it's engrossing. Um, it's a little bit like a soap opera, but one that's really well written and unpredictable as it goes along. So uh, the stories, the setting are really absorbing and the look is uh, beautiful. So uh, the 373 people who have also seen it on IMDb, I hope they agree with me. It's my number four film of the year. Byzanti. All right. Brilliant. Number four on my list is my vote for best documentary of the year, and that is Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, the film about uh, the life and times of Fred Rogers. Uh, having a little one now and catching some of the uh, the reruns of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on, on TV, I'm rediscovering some of the brilliance of, uh, of Mr. Rogers and this documentary really helped solidify that as well. Uh, he might be the most genuinely kind and good television star we have ever had because his one and only goal throughout his life was to help children be kind and that that that's what that's what he wanted. I mean, everyone always wanted to see, you know, were what were the skeletons in his closet? Why was he the way he was? Uh he he just was that. He just was that person. Um he, there there wasn't anything controversial about him. He was he was just a good honest person and in uh, in our world today, uh I think we need uh reminders of people like Fred Rogers and because of that I just I loved this movie um, I loved thinking back to uh, to being a kid watching his show uh, it, it was it was a great um, a great experience watching it and it's my number four so does that mean you're looking forward to Tom Hanks as mr. Rogers uh, you next year you know I we'll see we'll see I I it could go either way. I, I'm a huge Tom Hanks fan, but 
and and I was and I liked the picture that they sent out of him playing Fred Rogers. They just have that one little snapshot, but but ah, uh, I don't know. I like seeing Colin Hanks uh, playing I was Fred thinking Rogers the same thing. On, on Drunk History, which he did <laughs> like well, a year ago. And I was thinking he he fits the he would fit the persona a little more than Tom Hanks would. I mean, if if it, if you're just playing, you know, old Fred Rogers and maybe Tom Hanks, but Colin Hanks, I think yeah. I mean, Fred Rogers He's was still a, just going to be Tom Hanks. That's yeah. all. Fred Rogers was a beanpole his entire life. You needed to yeah, you need someone that's a little, little more gangly. Uh, anyways, you need DDK, DDK to play Fred Rogers. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Todd, number four. Spoiler alert. Okay, uh, my number four <laughs> is uh, a movie that I know that the other two people on here didn't really like, and that's The Old Man and the Gun. It's directed by David Lowry, and it's definitely a step out for the director. He's mostly known for making like really dark indie dramas like Ain't the Body Saints, but this is a comedy crime film and supposedly the last performance by probably the most underappreciated movie star I think ever, which is Robert Redford. And it's his most natural performance in decades. He's uh, playing Forrest Tucker, who's a real-life career criminal, and it's a dream final role for him. It's incredibly high war. It's like watching Frank William Abagnale in his 60s or 70s uh, it's a just really breezy, interesting, quietly hilarious, and uh, Danny Glover and Tom Waits play his crime partners, and Sissy Spacek is love interest. It's uh, it's just really fun. It's rewatchable, a joy to see Redford actually sinking his teeth into another great role, especially as a con man, bookending with uh, his career with the Sting. Uh, the Old Man and the Gun. I, I love the movie, and I don't know why nobody else really did. It was boring. I fell asleep twice during it. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're right. Redford was good, but it was, it, and it, number... it it was a great swan song. I think I wrote a review of it, and that's what I said. It was a great swan song, even though the film was mediocre. That's that was that was my thought. It's number sixty three on my list. Yeah, I, I haven't seen sixty three movies, so it wouldn't be that on mine. But um, let's see here. <laughs> It, it it's 22 on my list. I gave it three stars. I've only seen 38 films from uh, 2018. By the way, since we're since we're counting, I've seen 74. Todd 125, and this is number four, and that is a legit number four. I think you just have a man crush on David Lowry, the director. I, that's my suspicion. I think I think the name sold you before you even saw it. I think it might be more Redford than Lowry. Honestly, I I love Robert Redford. I always have. I don't know. It felt it felt like any other movie that that's it, it it felt like any other movie that's trying to get these like aged movie stars into one last great role. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it was like Robert Redford's bucket list. That's that's it, what it, it yeah. Like I said, it's it's Frank William Abagnale in his 70s. I mean, if this like if this was DiCaprio playing the role in his like 30s, you, like it would be totally you would be hit by it, right? I, you know, Todd, your list was going so well. Like you had some really <laughs> Oh, I, I realize entries. this is a, definitely a controversial choice. I don't give a <laughs> shit. <laughs> I mean, you had Halloween, you know, but that, like that was understandable, you know, but like this oh, you just, I, I think it's ruined. Good. I'm glad. 
373 voters agree with y- you, probably. Yeah, I bet there's only 373 people who liked the, the old man and the gun. The other thousands, you know, fell asleep like we did. See, I think, I think, I think Zach just picks the obscure movies so that we can't disagree with him. Yeah, and if we actually see them, then let's say we didn't understand it because we don't speak French. Uh, all right. Zach, number three. All right. Uh, yes, it says the man with so- Solar's Point and Zama on his list. Okay. Um, talking about obscure movies. Uh, okay. Um, number three on my list is a film that I know at least one of you really agrees with me on. And that film is uh, directed by Chloe Zhao. It is The Rider. And uh, this was a film that for a while, uh, actually probably a good portion of the year, was my number one film. Um, It tells the story of a young rodeo uh, dude. I guess he's not really a rodeo clown, but he likes to rodeo. And his name is Brady uh, Blackburn. Who's And in real life, uh, his name is Brady Jandro. In fact, the characters sort of play... Uh, versions of themselves. They have the same first names and in some cases last names. The film is not a documentary, but it has uh, non-professional actors in these roles. And it's probably exhibit A, if you are a director out there, um, with what to do uh, if you are working with non-professional actors, because these people are amazing. Uh, Almost every performance in this movie um, is incredible and probably Oscar-worthy to some degree or another. And certainly the lead performance by Brady Jandro is an Oscar-caliber performance. And in the film, he plays a young man who lives in, I believe, South Dakota, and uh, he is uh, he's just kind of recovering after a, a rodeo accident, and uh, he has issues with his hand, and he's getting seizures, and there's a scene where he kind of falls asleep at the wheel, and um, he's told by multiple medical staff that if he continues to ride horses and go to rodeos and participate, uh, there are, there's real danger uh, later on. Um, but what's so cool about the movie is that it shows that really he doesn't have a lot of other options in life. This is a, a really dreary, sort of depressed uh, environment that he lives in where there's nothing to do. And even his friends are just obsessed with rodeo and ask, and, and they treat him like a star. Like, when are you going to get back on the circuit? Um, he has a friend uh, named Lane Scott who is... Uh, basically paralyzed, uh, paraplegic at this point, as a result of a horse riding accident uh, on the rodeo circuit. So um, it's a movie that shows both the danger of doing this uh, very risky uh, sport, but also the powerful intrigue of it. And it's beautifully shot, and the landscapes are wonderful. And it has a sort of rich naturalism that you would find maybe in like, you know, early Terrence Malick films, like it feels, it feels like you're really in this environment. Um, And it's along with uh, some of the other films that we've mentioned on on our list. It's a coming of age story, absolutely, uh, because you can see kind of the the lure that this life has and the relatively few options outside of this life. Um, and his family also has a series of problems too. So um, it's remarkable romantic filmmaking, but with a strong sense of naturalism. Chloe Zhao is a director to watch, and uh, it's one of the best westerns this decade. It's the number three film of the year, The Rider. Don't see Lean on Pete. See the rider. That's that's the best horseback western movie of the year. Agreed. <laughs> All right. And uh, and stay tuned for our next podcast when we're back to our uh, regular uh, segments where uh, I will be reviewing the rider as uh, as it was my punishment for 
uh, for Todd winning trivia last time. So, which was the idea to you have watched it before you did your top ten, but somebody failed at that. Yeah, I didn't get to it. It's kind of been a busy couple weeks. Okay. Number three on my list is A Star is Born. Uh, This might be the fourth telling of this story on film. However, uh, it uh, it feels like a fresh story for a couple reasons, and those reasons are Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Uh, Lady Gaga shows that she is much more than than just a performer. She is an amazing actress. And Bradley Cooper proves that he is much more than an amazing actor. He is an amazing filmmaker and has has the potential of being like an all-time great when it comes to to just understanding film uh, in front of and behind the camera. Uh, The music was amazing. Uh, The song is going to win the Oscar, as it should. Um, I, uh, I was fascinated by watching these two on screen and the chemistry they had uh it was great seeing sam elliott again i already mentioned i'm going to be thrilled if he gets nominated on tuesday but uh a star is born uh i just i just loved it there were so many things i loved about this movie uh and it had me going uh from the very start uh amazing great movie my number three It's a great film, Terry, especially the middle portions. Right, Todd? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they dragged on and on. <laughs> I I didn't think. I, I thought it all worked great. Todd disagrees, but... It's, it's fine. Yeah, no. He just hates parts of the movie. Okay, Todd, number three. Okay, my number three is... Uh, a movie directed by Robert Schwenke, and that is called The Captain. Uh, it was probably the biggest surprise of the year because you look at Schwenke's other movies, he, he made a couple movies in America, like R.A.P.D., the, a couple Divergent movies, and The Time Traveler's Wife. They're really, really bad. But uh, he's a German director, and this is a German black-and-white World War II era film, and it is actually really, really good. Uh, it says... It was totally engrossing. It's about a young soldier named Willie Harold, and he escapes from his detail, and uh, he steals a captain's uniform. It's right at the end of the Third Reich. He really just steals it to keep warm, and he ends up sort of embodying everything he was trying to escape because he sort of gets caught up in the authority that he was given just by wearing the uniform, just by, like, people passing by, like, uh, on, like assuming he's a captain. And it was one of the few times in 2018 from the opening shot that I was really that entranced from the like from start to finish. There's some really darkly comedic moments, but it's really more about the um, the message about people who who are in times of transition are looking for guidance in anybody, and they'll just like blindly follow anybody who says that they're a leader or looks like a leader or acts like a leader. And uh, it's uh, I mean I just saw it recently, but it it has has still been swirling around in my mind and. Uh, and the only thing holding me back from being number one is like there's some sort of corny dialogue in the screenplay, but it might just be bad translation from uh, from from German to English. But I'm not really sure. But it it was really really a good movie, and uh, uh, it's it's called The Captain. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it, but uh, it's really good. 
Well, it has uh, it has more than 350 votes on uh, IMDb. It's up at 4,500, so... There we go. Somebody's seen it. He also directed Red. That was probably his best American movie, but he should probably s- stay in Germany. Okay. All right, Zach, number two. All right, well, now we're getting to the, the real cream of the crop with this list, and... These are my only two four-star films of the year, and really you can kind of think of them as 1A and 1B. Um, there's very little separation between them. They're both excellent. They're really the only two films this year that I think could potentially have a long-lasting impact, at least in terms of maybe my all-time list. Um, so I've gone back and forth a little bit on, on the order based on the day, but I guess today I'm just deciding that my number two film of the year has already been mentioned on this list. It is Damien Chazelle's First Man. This is an incredible film. I'm in complete agreement with Terry about I have no clue why uh, this is getting overlooked by the Academy Awards. Um, Universal has shifted its attention to Green Book, which is an atrocity. But uh, they're really missing out because this film um, had everything. I mean, it had a great lead performance by Ryan Gosling and great supporting work by Claire Foy and great supporting cast. But it also told a story that I think was unique and surprising. And uh, Terry and I are both fans of Apollo 13. And, and, you know, we've watched From the Earth to the Moon and we know uh, quite a bit about the the history of NASA in the 1960s. And and this film still had a lot of surprises for me. It was still really engaging and unpredictable to watch, even at times when you kind of knew when certain things were about to happen. Um, I got to say, the first 30 minutes of this movie especially were astonishing um, in just the visual detail. Uh, I love the way that Chazelle chose to shoot this film in this really kind of high-grain, high-saturation, almost like a home movie 16 millimeter stock footage from like the 1960s. It it looks so authentic and it looks so unique. Um, I love the way he did that. It immediately kind of puts you in the setting and the place. Um, And I love the approach. Maybe this is the most controversial thing about the movie. I think people, people don't like the fact that Chazelle chose to focus in the screenplay, um, on uh, Neil Armstrong's sort of emotional journey, starting with the devastation after the loss of one of his children. And to me, I think that's what's key to the character, which is that he um, isolates himself from his family to escape that kind of pain and puts all of his pressure, all of his effort into the work on to getting to the moon. Um, and I think it, in that respect, it's a lot more emotionally uh, rewarding, but also wrenching at the same time. It's a movie that doesn't have perfect, uh, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Resolution. Um, the score uh, by Justin Hurwitz is quite simply the best score of the last five years. Uh, when it won best score at the Golden Globes, I leapt for joy. It was one of the great, it was probably the biggest highlight of the Golden Globes for me. I hope it wins best score at the Oscars. I've listened to it nonstop on my phone. Um, it's an amazing film, belongs in the same list as Apollo 13 and Contact and some of those other films that Terry mentioned, uh, and it's Chazelle's best film too. So number two of the year, some days it's my number one, but number two for today, First Man. Way better than Space Cowboys. Way better than Neil Armstrong. <laughs> oh, wait, it is about Neil Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. Not better than Whiplash. It you know Whiplash is a great film too. It, it it's hard to compare. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, in terms of emotional impact, I don't know. I I couldn't leave the theater 
after the the last the last scene in that movie. I thought it was just emotionally wrenching and and perfect though in every way. So, uh, he, a great filmmaker making great films. We mean we need more of those. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I I might put First Man behind Whiplash and La La Land, but that just shows the strength of Damien Chazelle as a filmmaker right now. Um, okay. Number two on my list is one that's already been mentioned, and that is Leave No Trace, uh, written and directed by Deborah Granick, uh, starring Ben, Fro- ben Foster and Thomason McKenzie. Uh, I just saw this film uh, in the last couple weeks and was completely blown away by, uh, by the story, by the performances from, from the two leads. As I mentioned, the incredible performances by uh, by child actors this year, and Thomas and Mackenzie might be on the top of that list. I know Elsie Fisher is the one that's getting all the all the praise, but I you can't forget about what Thomas and Mackenzie did in this film. Um, ben Foster is is quiet and brooding and uh, and perfect for this role. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about it is how moving and deep and and touching this this film is uh how adult this film is even though it's from the perspective of this of this kid who's you know in her early teens um and because it's from from that perspective it it's a pg movie it's a pg rated movie that um that explores these these deep uh these deep issues and these deep topics just from her perspective uh it, it it's incredible i love that it was shot in portland oregon and you can totally tell unlike other films that claim to be in portland and they totally aren't um mr brooks i'm looking at you uh but uh leave no trace i i i loved it it was it was an incredible film uh it's still uh it still reverberates in my head to this day and it's my number two it's a great movie all right todd your number two all right uh like the last uh, like the two of you, the my number two has already been mentioned as well, and that is uh, Chloe Zhao's The Writer. Uh, I echo everything Zach said. Basically, it's it's got a really quiet and deliberate pace, but it's just memori- mesmerizing to watch. It's it's like easy to make in comparison to like The Wrestler or My Own Private Idaho. It's almost like a Jeff Nichols movie without shotguns, but uh, the performances, uh, the non actors are are the performances are beautiful and they're true and you you really just dropped into the lives of these characters and you're exposed to a side of america that isn't really represented on film all that much it could potentially be my number one but uh i don't know i it was so early in the year i've only seen it once but uh it, it does seem like a movie that'd be really enduring and timeless uh yeah the writer is a is just a, a brilliant movie it's my number two as of right now all the more reason for me to see it. Exactly. Yeah, so, so the expectations are high, Terry. Yeah. If you don't like it, we may have to kick you off this podcast. Y- yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he still let Todd hang around, even though he liked the history of violence. I mean, 
That was before the podcast started, Terry. That's true. That's true. And the website started, for that matter. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, now we are getting into number one. Zach, where are you going? I think I know where you're going, but let, let us know where you're going. Well, I think I'm actually going to pull an audible at the last minute here because um, I don't want to get that predictable. My number one film of the year is uh, a little film um, that is set in the wilderness, and it is a film called The Hurricane Heist. Directed by Rob Cohen, thieves attempt a massive heist against the U.S. Treasury as a Category 5 hurricane. Oh, no, wait, sorry, that's not my number one. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to see if you'd believe that. Okay. Uh, obviously, that was a lame attempt at humor. Um, You're not my a number good one. Actor. That's, that's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Zach, when it comes to uh, you, you can I, just say an attempt at humor. You don't have to specify that it's lame every time. I guess that's the thing. <laughs> and I can't even blame it on the alcohol this time. Oh, it's too bad. Well, my number one film of the year is a film that I think I've mentioned on the podcast a couple times. And uh, hey, what do we know? We It is a film that appears across all three of our lists. And that is Leave No Trace. Price approved. Thrice approved, thrice like, can we put it like majorly approved? I mean, this is a film that uh, appeared on all of our top ten lists. That's it's an increasing rarity at, at, in this given age. Um, I guess I echo the sentiments of Terry and Todd, except uh, I thought it was the best movie of the year. Um, to me, there wasn't a performance that came close in any movie uh, this year uh, that approached Thomas and Mackenzie's performance as Tom, the, the main character. Um, she's amazing. She's actually 18 years old in real life, playing a 13-year-old, and she's from New Zealand, too. I didn't even know that until after the movie. She absolutely nails uh, the American accent. Um, and of course, Ben Foster is one of the, I would echo what Todd said, one of the great actors, maybe the greatest living actor to not be nominated for an Oscar. Hopefully if there's any, you know, righteousness in the Academy, they'll nominate him this week. Um, this is a dramatic, also, I agree with Todd, it's a dramatic improvement over Deborah Granick's previous film, uh, Winner's Bone, but it has, it shares some crucial similarities with, with Winner's Bone. Um, a couple things that I'll just, I'll just add to the discussion about Leave No Trace. I love how quiet the film is. I read on IMDb that, uh, Deborah Granick and Ben Foster went through the screenplay and, like, eliminated, like, 40% of the dialogue. Um, that was just a great decision on their part because, uh, some of the stuff doesn't need to be said. It would be almost, it's almost a detriment to the film to go into details, too much details about their life and about, um, what may have happened to these characters, particularly Will, the father character. Um, we, we get just enough and we understand it and that kind of restraint is really, uh, appreciated. And then the other thing I like about this film is, um, as with a few other films on my list, like Eighth Grade, that's one that comes to mind, um, it's really a film that doesn't really have heroes or villains. Um, pretty much the majority of people in this movie are, are good. Um, they look out for each other, and the movie, I think, uh, and this is not always true of movies I love, but this is a movie that has a very optimistic and hopeful outlook on, I don't know, uh, human nature. Um, and I think that's it, it sort of makes a profound point about it, that even though these characters, particularly the Ben Foster character, is, is a damaged character psychologically and emotionally, um, there are people that are able, that try to reach out to him. And the movie doesn't take any easy roads with that, uh, but it does show that, um, you know, when you're willing to let people in, then uh, maybe you can have a positive influence in your life. Um, the exchanges, the chemistry between the between Thomas McKenzie and Ben Foster is amazing. 
the location, the cinematography, the music, uh, everything is outstanding. Uh, I have no clue why this movie isn't getting Oscar attention. It has a 100% approval rating. And uh, Jane Campion did write a piece in The Hollywood Reporter talking about how Deborah Granick should be one of the few women nominated for Best Director. This is a film that uh, should be getting a lot of Oscar accolades. But alas, like last year, like my number one last year, The Florida Project, it will probably get ignored. But you know what? The better for it. The real audiences know it's out there. They'll check it out. Yeah, how does a movie like this that has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes even get ignored by all the critics groups? I mean, it it's it doesn't make any sense. I have no clue. Yeah. Yeah. But Thomas and McKenzie is amazing. It's the best performance in any movie I saw this year. And uh, like Jennifer Lawrence, hopefully she will uh, do great things and win an Oscar in the next few years for something. Yeah, and not only is Ben Foster, like, the best actor never to be nominated for an Oscar, I think he might be, like, the most underrated actor of all time. he He is incredible in every role he's ever done. And he has constantly been that guy that's been, oh yeah, he that that face. I recognize that guy, but he's never been a household name in any way. He so. makes bad movies better, like the like a movie like The Mechanic. It could have just been like a stupid action movie, but that actually, movie's actually really good just because he's in it, mm-hmm. and he makes it serious. He's an amazing actor. <clears throat> All right, well. Let's move on to my number one. Moving from a movie we all agree on to one that I think is going to be a controversial pick here. Uh, However, uh, in all the films I watched uh, from 2018, this is the one film I watched where when it was over, all I could think was this was a masterpiece. And that film is Roma from Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, It is... uh, Based on Alfonso Cuaron's real-life uh, story of him being a kid in the 1970s in Mexico City, and it's uh, it's the story of uh, of this maid that lives with this uh, kind of upper-middle-class family, uh, based on the character or based on the real-life maid that he had growing up. Uh, I it's rare that you get a movie like this where the star of the movie is the director even though it, uh, he's never portrayed on screen but the, his his direction in this movie it is it, it was just outstanding i mean going from a film like gravity as his last film that won him a best director um for all the special effects and things that he did in this space space drama by the way there's another space movie we could have mentioned before um to going to this this quiet subtle black and white uh just uh film that was more about just the 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 pictures that were being made i mean it almost it almost felt like a camera reel of his of his childhood than uh than a movie i i just was completely uh drawn in by it from from start to finish uh i know you guys have have mentioned it may have been way too long i didn't think so um i i thought uh seeing this uh this entire dynamic through this this quiet reserved character's eyes uh yet understanding everything that was going on in her head through uh through the emotions that she gave in uh in her reactions to different things i i was 
blown away, blown away. And and to consider this as possibly Quaron's you know masterpiece, considering all the other great work he's done. A huge fan of Gravity, huge fan of Children of Men. But this might be his best is is incredible. And yeah, it was the one film I watched this year that said this this is a masterpiece. This is a master class of filmmaking. And it it had to be my number one. So number one, Roma. Go ahead. Rip me apart, guys. Okay, well, if anybody like, we get we needed to get some odds <laughs> on like Terry having a foreign film as number one and Zach not. Like there had to be some <laughs> serious, serious value on that. <laughs> Yes, would have hedged on that. I don't know. I don't entirely disagree with you, Terry. It's certainly better than your number one pick last year. Um, a vast improvement. Uh, I, I, I can understand where, where you're coming from. I wish the movie had been a little bit more political. I wish I, I thought that it was kind of setting us up in a direction where it wouldn't kind of romanticize how this woman is basically mistreated and ostracized by the woman she by the people that she works for um i didn't like that maybe that maybe that's the thing that stuck out to me as as kind of irritating and i did think it was too long however i think you're right about a lot of it i mean it's it it's uh it, it's a quiet film it's beautifully shot and uh i think it, ca- it captures a time and, and moment in history that is unique and certainly personal to Quaron. so i can't complain too much about that it's just i don't know i i uh, the 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 socialist marxist in me wanted a uh, class overthrow and and honestly i think if it had been if it had had like any politicalness in it i think it would have ruined it i think the beauty in it was the fact that it just told the reality of this situation and the reality of this character and yeah she wasn't necessarily treated the greatest but she was really a part of that family and she was it was almost like she was another one of the kids and um, and with all the all the highs and lows of what that means, uh, she was a member of that family, um, even though even though she wasn't technically a part of it. Uh, no, I I think I think it was perfect the way it was. And yeah, if it had gone political at all, I think it would have ruined uh, the tone of the film completely. Well, I think it, it, it. I don't know if the movie's political, but it certainly has political undercurrents to it. I mean, that, there's yeah. you know there's. Um, I mean, they're in the midst of this kind of political upheaval in Mexico in the 1970s, and so that that creates a sort of interesting backdrop. That's where I thought it was it was going in that direction potentially, but I think you're right. Cuarón is trying to stay true to this real life character, or excuse me, this real life figure that he's basing it off of, and trying to give her a voice, even though I felt as a viewer that she still, even in spite of being the main character, didn't have enough of a voice. And I and I hated the coincidence uh, in the furniture store that she sees uh, the the you know the, mm. the the father of her kid I, the, give me a break that's out of a that's out of a lesser movie but i agree with a lot of your points and i think it's a justified number one pick well thank you even though you <laughs> didn't give it a thumbs up well you know it's 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 a convincing pick it's certainly better than the old man and the gun i would prefer roma any day over <laughs> old man and the gun well that's for sure i wouldn't <laughs> obviously todd number one Alright, my number one is the can winner from 2018. It's Hirokazu Karita's Shoplifters. Uh, I was only half familiar with his work before this, I but I'm definitely going to go back and watch movies like Afterlife and like Father Like Son. And He's got a movie coming out this year with Ethan Hawke, which I just think is interesting. I'll definitely 
check that out when it comes out. Does he play a priest in that one too? Uh, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> but I'm not 100% sure on that. <laughs> in which case, I might be a little skeptical. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. This movie is about a family of petty thieves, and they pick up a girl who's uh, sitting outside during a cold night kind of oblivious to the fact that she has a family and they sort of adopt her as their own child and uh it begins kind of light but then as the plot and the backstories of the characters develop it, it gets really devastating and complicated and uh but i mean the uh motivations and and like are sort of unknowable at the same time it's it's really sort of a strange movie and it's really sort of one that you are thinking about like long after it gets gets over my favorite performance of the year was by sakura ando she plays the wife to the main character played by lily frankie uh yeah i mean it was the best time i had the movies in uh 2018 and it, i think it's the best can winner since uh four months three weeks and two days uh the final act is really hard to forget and all the characters like their the their uh, lives get put under a microscope and moral questions are asked and it, it it really is sort of complicated and really interesting and I think it's sublime and the best movie I saw in 2018 for sure Shoplifters the number one movie not Roma not not Roma all right well uh well let's run down our uh, our top tens one more time and then we will reveal our uh our almost sideways top five of two thousand eighteen. So Zach, give it to us one more time, ten to one. Alright, number ten on my list was Skate Kitchen. Number nine is Custody, number eight is Eighth Grade, number seven is the favorite, number six is If Beale Street Could Talk, number five is Three Identical Strangers. Number four is Vizanti. Number three is The Rider. Number two is First Man. And number one is not The Hurricane Heist. It is Leave No Trace. All right. And for me, number 10, Avengers Infinity War. Number nine, Mission Impossible Fallout. Number eight, The Favorite. Number seven, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Number six, A Quiet Place. Number five, First Man. Number four, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Number three, A Star is Born. Number two, Leave No Trace. And number one, Roma. Todd. Uh, number 10, Blind Spotting. Number nine, Zama. Number eight, Leave No Trace. Number seven, Halloween. Number six, Minding the Gap. Number five, Solar's Point. Number four, The Old Man and the Gun. Number three, The Captain. Number two, The Writer. And number one, shoplifters. All right. So now, the top five almost sideways uh, films of 2018. Uh, this is kind of interesting how this uh, how this played out. So, um, looking at it uh, on our four lists, there are 29 films represented, which is one of the highest totals we've ever had. Uh, actually, ties last year's total. Um, only 10 films were, uh, represented on more than one list, uh, over, over our four, uh, our four lists. So, uh, actually then I'll just go, I'll go 10 to one then I'll go top 10, uh, on our site, we'll, we'll list the top five, but I'll give the honorable mentions here. So number 10, eighth grade, number nine, Avengers infinity war, number eight, the favorite, 
number seven, A Quiet Place, and number six, A Star is Born. So those are ones just missing the list. So number five is Won't You Be My Neighbor? Number four, First Man. Number three, The Writer. Number two, Roma. And number one, Leave No Trace. And The Writer will even get higher after you watch that, it, Terry. That is a good point. And I think Leave No Trace will get higher if Adam actually sees it. So Adam, I know you're listening out there. Go see Leave No and, Trace. And if Adam watches The Writer also. That's true, too. That's true, too. All right. Well, another year in the books. And uh, now it's time to start looking uh, to the Oscars to fi finally wrap up 2018 and then also starting to look at some of the films coming out in, uh, in 2019. Uh, one last thing we're going to do before we go, and that is our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. We always end every podcast uh, giving you guys a quote, so we're going to give you guys a uh, one of our favorite quotes uh, from the year. Uh, I had a few to choose from, but uh, when it came down to it, I decided to go from something from, uh, from Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And uh, the idea is you've got these multiple universes and different Spider-Men come in, and one of the Spider-Men is Spider-Man Noir voiced by Nicolas Cage. And so he uh, he walks in and uh, and he says, hey fellas. And Miles says, is he in black and white? And Peter Parker says, where's that wind coming from? We're in a basement. And Spider-Man Noir says, wherever I go, the wind follows and the wind smells like rain. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great uh, character. It's, a, it's about as noir as you get right there. Uh, all right, Todd, give us your your quote of the year, you could say. All right, well, the quote of the year for me was the quote that I texted Zach right after I watched the movie, which is a movie which, or the quote probably describes the movie and the podcast as well, and it was by a character <laughs> named... <laughs> and he says, That was dope, yo. That's what's stuck with me quote. all year. That's, 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 a great, that's a great quote. It's a great quote. It's a great quote. All right, Zach, what's your quote of the year? All right, well, my quote of the year comes from uh, a movie that introduced us to the wonderful acting talent of Ben Foster, who we've uh, praised numerous times on this podcast, and the film that uh, launched his career, uh, Alpha Dog. And uh, it is the scene when he is on the phone with Johnny Trulove. And he tells, uh, played by, memorably by Emil Hirsch, and he tells Johnny, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to hunt you down, and then I'm going to slit your throat, and then I'm going to cut you open, and then I'm going to eat your motherfucking heart. You better pray, Johnny. You better fucking pray that the cops find you before I do. Get on your sucking knees and pray. Which I think would also describe this podcast. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> I was waiting that, for him like that. I don't know about this one, but he'll he'll still go with it. That that crazy like coked out Dennis Hopper channeling performance by Ben Foster. I love it. So the the other quote I was thinking of going with, I think, also describes a podcast, and that's from the favorite uh, when Lady Sarah comes back 
And Abigail says, my good friend, how good to see you've returned from hell. I'm sure you'll pass through it someday. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's a great movie. Anyways, so there's our top ten. There are quotes. And there is 2018 for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not done so yet, please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, find us all over the internet, almostsideways.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Uh, and uh, we will catch you next time. Until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.